This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths. Enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Every day, life brings challenges, whether they are small, day-to-day inconveniences, like traffic or loud neighbors, or major stressful events like the death of a loved one or several mental health issues. An effective treatment is therapy. Always remember that support is available if you or a loved one are experiencing mental health symptoms or coping with life challenges. Having a therapy is like having a wise best friend who is ready to support and guide you to the path of healing, happiness, and inner peace. Valeria interviews Nicole Maldonado. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist serving in Pennsylvania and New York and provides services in both English and Spanish. Nicole has worked in community-based settings providing individual and family therapy in homes, schools, and crisis centers. Nicole also has experience working in inpatient rehabilitation hospitals where she provided individual and family therapy with clients suffering from substance abuse and co-occurring disorders. She is also currently working in private practice setting, where she is conducting individual, couple, and family therapy for clients struggling with anxiety, depression, marital concerns, sexual trauma, sexual disorders, and various other concerns. Meet Nicole at thrivingcenterofpsych.com backslash therapists backslash Nicole-Maldonado.lmft. Here's the interview with Nicole Maldonado. In your own words, who is Nicole Maldonado? My name is Nicole Maldonado. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. So, I mean, professionally, I work as a therapist. I see both individuals, couples, families. Um, I have a large extensive history with working with different types of people with different concerns, um, particularly like, you know, in relational concerns, uh, substance abuse, alcohol concerns, um, particularly people who have had, you know, some grief, loss, especially trauma. Especially anxiety and depression as well, too. Those are two very common symptoms, two very prevalent symptoms I see a lot, if not on a daily but weekly basis. As far as personally, I'm definitely someone who likes to travel. I like to see different places, learn a lot from people, have different life experiences. I'm an animal person. <laughs> yes. I, I love yeah. I love all animals. I think they're great. And um, yeah, personally for me, I like to be at the beach do my work, um, try to connect as pe- with as many people as I can. I definitely am a person of connection. I like to be around my family. I like to be around my friends and loved ones. So that is a very, very important part of, of my life and maintaining those connections further. Mm, yes, that's a beautiful part of life, isn't it? Human oh, absolutely. Connection. Absolutely. What inspired you to become a therapist, Nicole? So um, it's really interesting. When I was in high school, I was kind of, I didn't even think about being a therapist. I kind of wanted to be a marine biologist because I love, again, I love animals. I love the ocean. I think, I think that was every uh, kid's dream at some point just to be in the ocean. I know for me, I was kind of like that friend that everybody went to when they came for advice or like that kind of friend in the group that was, and this is not to toot my own horn or anything, but it was I was a kind of like the grounded figure. Everybody kind of looked to me for advice or they really confided in me, um, especially about like, I remember several friends when I was young in high school, like they were confiding in me about a lot of stuff that was going on at home or in their relationships and some pretty intimate stuff. And, you know, I, I found I'm like, wow, like this is really meaningful for me. Just the fact that these people are coming to me and telling me all this stuff. So when I went to college, I was like, you know what, maybe we could look at psychology to see if I can make this a career. And I did, and I ended up loving it. I did my 
four years at Monmouth University. I got my bachelor's in psychology. I went further to do um, licensed marriage and family therapy because, again, I really do like the connection piece when working with people and connecting with people. Like I, I really find when, especially when it comes to treating people with anxiety and depression, like making, making meaningful connections in your life is very, very important. I think it's good to have a, a group of people, whether it be friends, family, people that you can confide in and learn to trust. I think that's very, very important to have in, in one's life. So a sense of community has always been big for me. And that's why I chose the marriage and family therapy route, because I like that you know, maintaining connections and creating healthy connections with people is something I value a lot in in my work. You just mentioned you are a licensed marriage and family therapist. So let me ask you two initial questions about that, open questions. What is love to you and what makes a healthy relationship, intimate relationship? I guess love is like someone romantically familial or like in in a friendship setting, someone that you can really learn to confide right? In a person, someone that you can learn to trust, um, someone where you feel safe and secure, right? These are kind of like the relationship dynamics that I work with with people. Like, you know, do you feel safe with them? Do you feel secure with them? Do you feel like you can be your true self with them and really express what's going on for you vulnerably, intimately, right? Like in whatever your needs are in that relationship, because every type of relationship looks different and has different needs, whether if it's a family relationship or a romantic relationship, or again, like friendship relationship, those needs are expressed differently within the certain forms of that relationship. So I think love kind of comes in a way where it's like, you know what, I can be my true self and feel accepted by the person I'm in a relationship with. Romantic love is also like a, a different sense where there's like passion, right? There's, but I, I always find like companionate love, companionate love being like, you feel like you're in love with someone who's your best friend. You feel like you're in love with someone who respects your autonomy, values your independence, as well as, you know, someone that you can trust and confide in and grow a life together. All that stuff like really shows like pillars of one that kind of go, going into your next question of a healthy relationship. I think the main pillars of a healthy relationship are again having that respect for one another, seeing each other in a positive light, right? Like you know, how can my partner enhance my way of living and and vice versa? Um, as well as again having the trust, the safety, security, and really feeling like you can be your true self with this person, not feeling like you have to hide, not feeling like you have to put a facade on, right? To stay in the relationship. It's something where it's like, okay, I can really grow and enhance my life with this person and being thankful and appreciative to them. Like all of those emotions really enhance love because being in love with someone, any relationship is like a garden. You have to go in there. You have to go in the garden every day, water the garden, take out the weeds, right? Like check the soil, plant new seeds, right? Like it's, yeah, so it's the same thing with the relationship and any form of a relationship, really familial, romantic or friendship relationship, it needs nurture. And the more you show appreciation, the more you show trust, the more you can really connect with people is what nurtures the love in the relationship. Especially from uh, the relationship point of view, intimate relationships, yeah. it just really does, especially mm-hmm. the part of uh, being your true self, the authentic yeah. self without the need to hide anything. How do you describe that, Nicole? What is to be your true self? I think for many people, and even as well as myself, right? Someone that you don't, like you feel like you can be your natural self with, whether if it's like a bubbly self, like it, you know, there's so many different personality traits, right? And, you know, and and I'm not saying like, you know, all personality traits are healthy because there's, you know, certain personality disorders and stuff, but that's another topic. Ah, It is a podcast conversation. Yeah, right. But when you get to a point where it's like, you know, I can really show my partner what I'm interested in, right? And not feel judged or, you know, show them areas where, I don't like using the term like weaknesses, but areas that maybe you want to grow in, um, showing them your insecurities, right? Like, you know, showing both your strengths and the areas of growth in, in, in your life and in your own personality. And again, not feeling judged, like really showing the vulnerable part of a person I feel like can. And again, that comes with trust. That comes with building that trust and security in the relationship to show yourself that side of yourself to a person and feeling that you feel accepted, feeling loved, feeling cared for. I think all of those can kind of constitute with, with again, showing who you, just who you are as a person, right? Like, you know, knowing if you're, if you're struggling with something in your life, for example, right? If it is mental health or any other situational circumstance, right? Like that and being able to turn towards, this is a term we use in therapy, right? Like turn, turning towards one another 
And, you know, again, knowing you can turn towards your partner and either receive the support or help or care that you would need, like that's, that in itself shows what, what it can be like to be your, be yourself and be your ideal self, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Uh, In relation to somebody else, would that apply to the self in itself, in a sense of, would you call it self-trust? Regardless of what the world thinks of me, I would still behave and do the things that I believe that feels true to me, that feels real to me. Is that something that resonates with you too, Nicole? Absolutely. 100%. And that's something I see a lot with people where it's like they try to fit the social norm or they try to fit the group norm because, you know, us as human beings, like, and this kind of goes back to like some evolutionary psychology, right? Like we don't thrive well alone. Human beings are not, we're not meant to be alone. We're meant to be in groups. We're meant to be in packs, right? Back in our earlier on in our days, right? Like, you know, we were always in tribes. That's how we function. We function in groups and same thing here. And I often see people with a lot of social anxiety. That's a very, very common form of anxiety where it's like, you know, if I'm not accepted into the group, right? Or if people see me in a negative light, that kind of poses as a threat because we want to be accepted. We want to be liked, right? And a lot of people will kind of change, not change completely, but maybe change their ideals or change in a situation, right? Just to fit the group because you want to be accepted in the group. You want to feel a sense of belonging. I think it takes a very confident person to share what their values are, right? What is really meaningful to them and how to find the group that is most meaningful to them instead of finding random people and random groups of friends or random group or random partners, right? Just to, just to feel that acceptance or feel that belonging, right? I think it takes a really confident and um, kind of the word that you were using, like a strong sense of self to be like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to look for the group that best fits my needs either if it's a friend group or a partner, right? Like who's going to best fit my needs. So I I think it kind of that part that you make, I think it goes a lot of, it goes towards with confidence. Like, you know, how much confidence and security does that person have within their own self to look for the group that best fits them as opposed to just looking for any random group of friends or a partner to just to have somebody. That um, makes me think about the references we have of healthy groups to belong to. Like in my case was with my growing up with my family. It really, uh-huh. I was trying so hard to belong to that family in the sense of doing anything to please them, my father, my mother, yeah. and they are not healthy. They're very anxious and they, they just behaved in a way that was not healthy. And seeing that as a child, I I mean, the only thing I could do is just to try my best to, to do whatever they asked me to do so I would right. be hurt or not feel that I'm, I was not loved. So that was my reference, which really got myself in trouble throughout my uh, adulthood in relationships because I kept looking for um, for relationships that just, um, they are not healthy. And that's interesting because it was the only thing known to me. So that was my reference. It's okay. kind of sad, yeah. isn't it, Nicole? Yeah. 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 It, I mean, especially you want something, especially as a child, though, like you're not real. like kids aren't going to know about because, again, our family unit is the first tribe that we have. Right. So it's like, of course, we're going to follow the what we call like a family system to be a part of the family system. And the family system is kind of like the theory where it's like, OK, a fa- think of a family as kind of like a machine. And each member of the, I, I know it's a, it's a weird analogy, but each member of the family is a certain part of the machine. And we all need a part of that machine to make it, to make them, uh, each part needs to function in order to, for the machine to work. But it's like in certain family systems, we have to realize that there's unhealthy habits. If there's unhealthy personalities or choices, right? Like unhealthy behaviors, the machine is not going to work. But if there's one thing that I've learned a lot, it's like families try to make things work in their own way instead of change. Um, and that's always a big thing when it comes to family systems, right? Like, and that's, and even if one part, right, is not working and for, for whatever reason, right, whatever the situation is, um, it really, like the family system can feel the gravity of people. And just like, again, back going back to those unhealthy behaviors, especially in, in the case of abuse, right? If there's abuse happening, the, the system's not going to work. The system is not functioning well. It's it's function, it's not functioning at all. It's, it's an unhealthy system. Um, so it takes a lot, a lot of courage to kind of, one, for that person, that individual to see 
what's going on in the system, right? Because when we live in family systems for so long, right? And we, you know, there's there comes a point like, you know, when you're a child and then you go to adolescent phase, right? And you, then even adolescence, it's young adulthood. When you start to see your family and you start to see your parents, your parents in particular, or whomever our caregivers were, to be like, wow, I never realized how unhealthy, right, this relationship was. Or maybe, or maybe vice versa. Wow, I didn't realize how healthy this relationship was, right? Like you start to grow into your own autonomy and your own individuality. And from there, you can see the functioning or non-functioning parts of the family system that, again, as a child, we're really not going to see that because that's our first our, that's our first sense of a tribe. And that's our first sense of, you know, what what we see as appropriate or non-appropriate based off our our caregivers. People don't realize how often, like when we when we grow up, like, you know, these messages and behaviors that we see from parents or whomever our caregivers were at the time, um, that really do play into our own development and how we see the world as again, what's appropriate or not appropriate in certain settings, if, if that kind of makes sense. Yes. Yeah. Very much. It was my case for sure. Mm-hmm. Living okay. from the lens of, of that worldview that um, unhealthiness was healthy to me. So I could not trust myself for a long time, trust my own intuition, my own decisions when it came to people, because something in me was always looking for a reference, a familiarity. So that was very important. And then going into the topic of spirituality, that was my path. So I started to actually look into what I could trust, what I couldn't see, the invisible world. Started with the skies and the stars and the moon and then the trees. Mm -hmm. And then it gave me a sense of peace that I couldn't find out there around people or things, places. And that's how, instead of going for therapy, I just um, kind of emerged into this world, the invisible world of spirituality. And it has been the case up to to this day. Talk to me about what is spirituality to you and what is the connection between spirituality and mental health, Nicole? Okay, so spirituality for me, um, gosh, yeah, this this reminds me of my group days when I was working in the, yeah, working in the inpatient rehab. I worked at the inpatient rehab for two years and um, I would run groups there on spirituality. And the reason I called it spirituality because, you know, we had AA groups, but those were a lot more Christian based groups. Um, So, and then not everybody, not all of our patients were Christian. So I kind of created this group for people of all different religions and beliefs to kind of talk about their faith and how their faith is, has been a strength for them. And especially in their own recovery and in, in both gaining and maintaining sobriety. So particularly with spirituality, um, and again, I'm not going off of a text here. I'm kind of going off of my own research with different religions. I've often seen that like, okay, like religion in the way is kind of like, hey, what's our form of practicing our faith, right? Like, you know, how, what are, what's the prayer? How do we pray? How often do we pray? Rituals, et cetera. Um, and as far as like, you know, spirituality more so, the inner kind of the inner, uh, what's the word I want to use? I guess kind of inner feelings or just like going back to the faith of how our faith can be strengthened from the physical stuff that we're doing, which is the religious part, um, how our faith is strained, how, how we feel, right? Even just going back to like, okay, learning to let go of maybe certain stressors, right? Like believing that, okay, we have a God or a, or a spirit or the universe, all that is, right? Depending on the religion that one follows, right? Just to kind of get the sense of, okay, inward, what's going on with us on an inward level. And I, I'm not a theologian, so I, I, I am, so I'm probably not making, I don't know if I'm making sense there in that area, but, but I've often found that spirituality is more inward as opposed to like the religion, which is more like, okay, that is the physical stuff. That's the action piece mm. that we do to, to express and worship our, in, in our faith. Mm, yes. Well, that is definitely my perspective. Yes. Okay. It's, yeah. it's looking within, yes, it's your inner world, which has to do a lot with psychology, the feelings, emotions, but also going beyond that, <laughs> beyond the mind content which is, it's called mysticism when you have experiences that are not really, uh, they don't rely on the uh, the five senses. So they come in as visions, or you have these amazing lucid dreams, or you talk to trees. <laughs> I mean, I just talk to nature all the time. It's, um, to me, it's not even... It's not even a thought that it is logical not. It's just, it's so natural. Like, oh my God, you know, animals and all that. To me, they all, they always speaking to me. <laughs> can, 
Can I just say something yeah. about that? I remember when I was doing the um, my spiritual and religious groups when I was working in the rehab and legit, like, we, we would talk about like areas and like, you know, what is the spaces that we feel the most at peace, though, that we feel most connected with the divine. And everybody would say either like in an ocean, like, like somewhere out in nature, right? In the woods, by a lake by the ocean. And I don't mind disclosing this, right. That that's my place, right. Like, you know, being, being near a beach, I know some beaches are man-made. Um, I remember even having this one conversation, right. With a, with a close friend of mine, actually, that they like being in the desert, right. Just the, the heat, the sand, the ground, right. Like, you know, in it's nature in it's most raw form. Um, that was, that was a, so yeah, I mean, like I would obviously hear like churches and mosques and temples, right. Like where people feel connected, but, but in these natural settings is another very, very common answer that I've heard people feel the most connected with the divine when they're worshiping. Yes. Yeah. It has been my experience to interview so many people. They all mm-hmm. say the same thing. Yeah. And it it must be, I mean, from my experience is that it's because it goes beyond thinking. So there's a kind of communication there of energetic transmission that bypass thinking. And it's still, it's extremely powerful. But okay. there's no yeah. thinking, there's no concepts, there's no ideas really kind of populating the mind. But it's it's a sense of freedom, really. Like, ha, huh. it's expansion yeah. first and then freedom. Ah, oh, it's almost like I'm, I am as free as everything that is in front of me, the ocean, right. uh, the trees, the, the animals, perhaps not, because I know they have um, fear, uh, the level of the mind. I've often heard like a sense of feeling like liberated and, and yes. I, don't, I don't know if that's what you're yeah. kind of, yeah, like just being like, you know what, all those daily struggles that I was thinking about, it's, it's gone, right? Like it's gone for this moment. I feel at peace with myself. Like I, like I really, I've heard a lot about just like this inward peace that is not there, or maybe that is not paid as much attention to because we're just doing so much on the day to day that we really don't get a sense to really sit and be present and really connect with what that peace can be like. And I know a lot of people have said like in a lot of these natural settings or settings that they feel most connected to is when they can feel that peace and when they could feel some connection with the divine. Mm, yes. And if we can bring this to our activities, whatever we do, then it's, it becomes a wonderful practice. Right. Absolutely. Actually, that's something that you do too. I know this, it's um, a modality that you use, uh, mindfulness, mm-hmm. mindfulness yes. meditation. So is is that connected to what we are talking, the practice that we are speaking of, Nicole? In a way, right? Mindfulness is basically like, okay, what's because, well, I guess what I'll say to that, it's like mindfulness is definitely something that it's an Eastern practice and I'm still new to mindfulness. I, re- I'm, I can't say I'm a mindfulness expert. Um, what I will say, I do use a lot of basic mindfulness practices in my, when I work with people. Um, so just like b- basic stuff, like deep breathing, right? Knowing your environment. Being able to know, okay, what's happening for you right now physically? What's happening for you right now emotionally? You know, I live on the East Coast. I'm near New York City. So like, you know, our culture here, it's like, go, 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 right? You wake up, you go to work, you do the stuff at work, you go home, you do this, you do that, you do that. So it's like people really don't stop and be present in the moment. And that's kind of what I usually work on when when it comes to mindfulness practices, being mindful of just what you're, basic stuff like what you're eating, right? How good the food is. Um, I use it a lot when it comes to anxiety and because anxiety is the body's natural response to fear, right? So people with anxiety disorders or just like anxious catastrophe, um, catastrophizing thoughts, right? Like, you know, your, your mind is going in so many different directions. And I'm like, I use mindfulness practices as well as some cognitive behavioral um, therapy to kind of like, all right, let's hone back in on the moment. What's just happening for you in the moment? What's happening to your body? What's, are you feeling any pain in your body? Are you feeling any tension going on in your mind? Where's your mind going right now? Like bringing everything back to the moment so they can have more awareness of what's just happening for you right now, as opposed to letting all of these like anxious thinking kind of involve you. So, so kind of bringing in, bringing that into the spiritual part, right. Of just learning to be in the moment, right. Learning to take control of the mind and just bringing it to the moment of what you're feeling physically, as well as emotionally, as well as cognitively, right. Like knowing when, knowing what your mind is doing on the day to day, people really don't pay attention to their thoughts. I I find. Um, So just having that sense of just like, you know, being aware of what you're actually saying to yourself, what are you thinking about yourself, right. People just have these organic negative thoughts that can just spiral all the time and they really don't see the effect it has on them until again we'll do some mindfulness stuff and really bring it to the moment and people realize wow I didn't 
I didn't think about it this way, or I didn't realize how heavy this has been lingering on me. Um, so that's, that's kind of the, the stuff I do with mindfulness. Um, like I said, I'm not a mindfulness expert. I don't do like the major, um, longer meditations, but I just give people the basic tools and try and, and encourage them to try to enhance that in their day-to-day or practice it on the day-to-day. Yes, and that is um, what it takes to be connected to the inner world, which is so important. I think I didn't ask you this question. It was an open question about the mental health. How do you define mental health these days? Um, so my definition of mental health would be like, you know, what's just the overall, because I guess when you look at like physical health, right, like you, you assess based off your physical symptoms, right? Just, you know, of, of what you're, how your body's feeling, any pain or discomfort, I would say like, you know, when it comes to your mental health, like, you know, look at how, look at how you see the world, look at how your thoughts are, look at how you're functioning, right? Like, you know, can you solve problems? Can you withstand problems? Right? Like, you know, because when, when it comes to being tolerant of certain uncomfortable things, I think mental health is more of understanding yourself, understanding your symptoms, if you have symptoms, right? And understanding what's the best skills I can learn to enhance one, my overall well-being, which is just having not even so much having a positive mindset, but having a mindset where it's like you can think clearly, think rationally about certain situations. Yes, we're human. We're going to have thoughts. You know, we're going to have anxious thoughts. We're going to have depression thoughts sometimes. Right. Like we're, we're going to have these thoughts. We're going to have these feelings. But I think the best thing would the best definition I can contribute to mental health is like understand where that's coming from, understanding those emotions a little bit more to understand yourself. Um, and also like anything else in life, like, you know, when these emotions get too much or get too heightened, right. And then they affect your functioning or they affect your relationships or they affect how you see things, right. If you're thinking so negatively about yourself, about everything all at once, right. Like, and then it really sees how that plays into your, in your life, right. Like that's, I don't know if this is like your, uh, if, if this is describing mental health to you, but kind of just really understanding your symptoms, understanding your thoughts, understanding how you think and understanding the emotional responses that you have. Um, and obviously addressing those symptoms if they're really interfering in your life. That's that's the best definition I could give of mental health. I know it's, it's a wordy definition, but uh, uh, it's thing with mental health. Is so It's so much more complex right? Like, you know, when it comes to your own development and even as we were talking about your family before, right? Like, you know, just even family development, relational development, emotional development, every trauma, right? Like, um, you know, especially kids that were abused at a young age, the trauma that they go through in, in their development, emotionally, physically, spiritually, all that stuff. Um, it really does kind of understanding your development, understanding how that has impacted you in your adult years, as well as understanding what those symptoms are right if there are underlying symptoms and how to and how to best learn the healthiest skills to lead the happiest and healthiest life possible for you yeah it makes it resonates 100% true to me at that level okay. body mind it's the yeah. work of self discovery self awareness self knowledge self love self trust to me they all connected you just mentioned happy the word happy is that the goal of healing, doing this work of well-being, self-discovery, self-knowledge, Nicole, would you say happiness? Well, I mean, I, I think that's everybody's goal at some point, right? <laughs> yes, <for sure. laughs> to, to, to happy, right? And <laughs> I think happiness kind of <laughs> has this stereotype where it's like, oh, happiness, you have to be smiling and you have to be like, so like in this bubbly state of mind. And, and that's really not what happiness is about. Happiness is like, just like your overall experiences, right? And, and being content, being, having a sense of fulfillment, and I kind of use like four domains when it comes to fulfillment in your life, right? Like your financial um, fulfillment, your physical health, your mental health, relationships. Um, I think there's a, the fifth dimension of like spirituality and religion, but I know that doesn't really apply to everybody if they're like um, agnostic or atheist. But basically you look at those main domains in your life and is there a sense of balance in each of them? And if there is, because each, I know there are different domains, but each one can kind of inter, uh, interlap one another one. If there is a, maybe like a disruptance in your life and there's always going to be a disruptance because that's what life kind of throws at us. So it's something where it's like, I, it's not the goal of happiness, but to be fulfilled and live with a purpose that you yourself are living a life that you're content with. If, if that makes mm, sense. Yes. Um, 
I call it inner peace, but it's the same thing, same idea. Contentment, inner peace, right. Which also sounds like acceptance. I like that inner peace part, right? I, d- I definitely like that part of just like, cause that's, that's actually another, when I think about it, it's really the goal of what I do too. Like finding, finding peace, finding fulfillment, finding purpose. You know, when you do something or if you have a life, if you have these relationships that are purposeful and meaningful to you, the more meaningful it is, the more, the more content and fulfilled that person is. And that's what, again, I don't, I don't use happiness, but I just use a lot of, I use the word more fulfilling when working with others. So that's, that's kind of the goal, right? Like, you know, what's the ideal life that you want to lead? What's the changes or work that, not changes, but more so the work that you want to improve on for yourself to help you be at your most optimal level, at the level that you see yourself leading this fulfilling life. Do you connect these ideas to having a purpose? And if you do, what is to have a purpose? So the purpose, and this is another thing I actually did with um, when I was working in the rehab, right? Just having a sense of purpose is, again, there's no, there's no concrete definition to purpose, right? Like, you know, anything, like it's, it's something where you kind of have to go and find your purpose. Um, the one thing I will say to that, it's like, think of purpose, finding your purpose is kind of like an experiment. You're a researcher in the laboratory, but but you kind of have to get out there, right? You got to study, right? Study religions or study faith, you know, be meeting people, um, you know, do a work or a trade that you find, that you find, that you find fulfilling, right? A passion, right? It doesn't have to be something you're always super passionate about, but even so something where you can connect with the work or the trade. Um, but you, ha- you kind of have to go out there and, and try it, right? Try, try everything in a safe, sane, consensual way. Right. But, but, but that's, that's the thing with finding purpose. It's like once you're not going to know what is purpose purposeful unless you're actively doing it. Um, and that's the thing that I, I encourage, especially when working with people that have um, had addiction and substance abuse histories, because especially with addiction and, and drugs, like drugs just suck the life out of you, right? People don't know who they are anymore, especially if they've used drugs for like so many years, right? It's, it comes to a point where it's like, I don't, I've heard many people say like, you know, I don't even know what brings me joy or the life I want to live, right? You, you kind of have to reconstruct your life over from scratch, which is the hardest thing you could do, especially if you're in your adulthood. But to find that purpose, again, you have, you have to go out there and build your life in, in a way. And then it's, it's, it's hard, right? Cause there's always risk, right? There's always like, what if I don't find my purpose with the, the what ifs, right? That kind of lead the anxiety on, but even so like studying, meeting people, traveling if you can, right? Like all of these things really builds, a, enhances a person through their own development. And that alone enhances the experience of finding that purpose and actually feeling what a purpose mm. feels like for you, which is kind of understanding when you feel fulfilled. Yeah, right. Is that something that you could say for yourself that you have found your purpose by being a therapist? As of right now, I think I think so. I I, I do love what I do. I do love connecting with people and talking to people. It's a it is a tiring job, I will say that, but it, it definitely is a fulfilling job. Like to know like my one one of my purposes here, right? Like I think purpose is also not something that's one thing in your life, right? Like it could be several roles um, you take on. But one of my purposes here is to definitely connect with people and connect with people in a way that, yeah, they do share a lot of vulnerable stuff with me, but knowing that they can trust me with this and knowing that we can work on something where I can give them whatever knowledge and information I've learned over my years as a clinician and in school and in through my and through my experience and help enhance other people's lives. Like that to me is very, very purposeful and very fulfilling. And yes, at the end of the day, I could, I could be tired some days, you know, I, I will admit yeah. that, but <laughs> I don't, I don't feel that sense of like, like, what am I doing? Right. I've, I've heard that from a lot of people in, in jobs or trades that they're not feeling fulfilled. And it's like, what am I just doing? Right. Like there's, or just kind of questioning or feeling that doubt. I've, I've never felt that in my line of work and I'm great. I'm very grateful for that. Wow. Yeah. I love the way you have been saying this since the beginning of the conversation. I think even before oh, really? <laughs> we started recording, yes. Yeah. <laughs> connection, connection. So connecting meaningfully with others. Yeah. Um, tell me about it. I have heard that addiction was probably Gabor Mate, I think his name is. He said that, um, that connection is the antidote to addictive behaviors, connecting with oneself, of course, and then connecting to others. Is that something that you subscribe to, this idea? Oh, 100%. I firmly agree with that. I don't think it's the whole 
part of main, of getting and maintaining sobriety, but I think it's a, over 50% worth of the treatment because even, you know, when I was working in the rehab, right, we, we had groups, like so many groups, um, you know, like small group sessions, large group sessions, right. All with different topics and everything, hearing other people out and hearing what other struggles were, as well as kind of understanding it's like, wow, this person went through something similar to me, right? Like knowing that they're kind of on the same boat as I am. It makes you feel less alone. It makes you feel less isolated. It makes you, again, it make it goes back to the connection piece. They could feel connected with others. They can know, okay, this is not, this is not just a me thing. I think that's the main purpose of group is just knowing that, okay, this is something that a lot of people, unfortunately, a lot of people ha- are struggling with right now, um, especially in the United States. I don't know how it is in other countries, um, but it's something where it's like group therapy and the connections that people build in group help people just feel better. And I, I used to run sessions where it's like, you know, especially de- depending on the group, right? Like we were um, running sessions where people had said a prayer before and at the end of the sessions and honestly they said that made their day right like you know being able to pray together being able to talk to one another together being able to tear tell their struggles about just relapsing and family conflict and you know past events that they regretted doing right like it was just this was just a place for them where it's like okay they felt connected they didn't feel judged they were hearing uh, each other's war stories and everything right and it got to and it's like group therapy is very, very important when it comes to addiction and uh, substance abuse treatment because that connection and not feeling alone and feeling isolated. And there's a lot of self-critical thoughts um, when people are in recovery. Like I'm a, I'm a terrible person. I've hurt so many people, yada, yada, yada. And when you already believe so many negative things about yourself to be true, you're going to relapse, right? Like not, not hundred percent of the time, right? I'm knocking on wood here, but, but it doesn't help with the recovery process and group therapy really helps to kind of not normalize, but give a sense of like, Hey, like we went through these struggles too. We understand why we did what we did and how the drugs really affected us in this negative manner. And that can really help with, with uplifting people in those sense. So I do subscribe to that. It's, I don't think it's the full antidote, but I think having connections and understanding what, why other people went through some certain um, past as well too. I think that really does help people. Again, it really does the isolation, yeah. right? Like the, yeah. the isolation really helps with that. So I, did I answer your question? Yes, you did. Uh-huh. Yeah, very much. So it is even more than 50%, I think you said. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and then you make, made me curious about the other um, 40% or somewhere yeah, there. I'm, what I'm, would that yeah, be? I'm paraphrasing here, but I, I would say it like at least like, so between group and building connections, uh, what else I would say is help with getting and maintaining sobriety is having a set of healthy boundaries, right? Knowing the certain people to not return to. Um, and I say this in a way where it's like, again, I don't want to talk ill of others, but more so like people that maybe didn't have the healthiest boundaries or people that have, um, you know, anything that could be just like triggering of your past, like, you know, certain areas, right? Like understanding the groups that you were in and maybe groups that, again, just weren't the, the healthiest of personality types around drugs, right? Like that's something you really have to have firm, firm boundaries around. Um, again, going back and finding that purpose, finding a new set of friends, finding a new area um, to go to and spend your time more often, um, having your own skills, right? Like read, write, exercise, right? Just some of the, the basic healthy lifestyle choices, drink plenty of water, um, like all, all of that stuff where it's like, okay, maintain your own individual skills, maintain your own individual boundaries, take the risk, go out there and meet new people, go to a new congregation, go to a new meeting every now and then if, if a certain meeting isn't serving you. Don't go to old places where it reminds you of, of those past events, right? Like that's, and, and I, I understand that's hard and it's easier said than done for, for some people in certain situations, but it's, so that's, the next part, I would say, right? Like the connection's a big one. It's a, it's a very, very big one. But also having your own individual skill set um, is also something that I highly recommend learning to enhance your own individual traits as well. Yeah. So it's self-reliance, self-trust, right? That's, yes. To me, that's key. Uh, when you talk about keeping your distance from people who have traumatized you or yeah. still dwelling on those unhealthy behaviors. That's exactly what I did with my family. I had to leave the country. That was easy for me to make the decision right, to leave the right. country and stay here wow. because, um, yeah, it was not healthy. 
course. But then everything else, I seem to make sense. <laughs> the all the food and everything that I did, I never used drugs or anything. I was always interested in deep conversations and all that. But That's then great. relationships was the drive, the yeah, the addictive kind of. Uh, it's, it, I think it had to do with um, trying to feel loved because I was not loved by my parents. Okay. So that was almost wow. addicted to feeling loved. And that's why I would do anything. To be honest, especially from a child, and I don't know how young you were, but like child, especially into your adolescence, like that's, it's a, that's a big motivator, right? Like you're going to do anything to feel your parents' love because again, they're your first, they're your first relationships. They're your first tribe. So you, of course you want to be accepted into your tribe and kind of, caregivers and parents they kind of hold that role and let me know if this makes sense right this the sense in, in a child's eyes it's like they they teach us that and and again not object object um subjectively speaking i should say we learn through them about the world first you know we learn about culture we learn what's quote-unquote appropriate or not appropriate in in their eyes based off of what i was talking about before based off what the family system operates it's really not until we get to that adolescent or older um young adult part where we start to realize some of these patterns be like oh maybe this isn't this isn't how i want to live right i don't i don't agree with these patterns or i don't agree with these behaviors that's happening in the family um and we really don't separate that until we're older until we go through our own individuation process um but that's a really painful journey for a lot of people like it's because it can still especially that can kind of create what we call an attachment wound we're older and it's like okay wow like to have that sense of just like okay i wasn't loved by my family and it's usually for external reasons right but that individual can sometimes and let me know if this resonates with you can sometimes hold that belief it's like okay i something must have happened to me right or some it must be me that that mommy and daddy don't love me right and then that that can actually bleed into some of their other relationships when they're older and it's just a sad process because it's really when you look at the reality of it it's really nothing like that actually and in most of the cases right i've seen not not all of them but um you know i'm, I'm generalizing here when i'm speaking about families and family systems but even that that trial it's, it's really a long, a long trial of trying to win affection, trying to win love. And okay, for, for whatever reason, mommy and daddy didn't love you, that can create a big wound for a lot of people. And coming to terms with that when you're older, it, again, it, it comes when you're older and yeah. understanding yeah. that individuation process. So the sense of um, lack of trust and then I remember lo very low self-esteem. So not really trying to do anything to please other people. So right, right. I would feel like something because that, you know, when I think about it, it's really sad. And then when I really think about now in this moment, I feel happy because like, oh, wait a minute. I don't even know where all that went yeah. <laughs> because it disappeared completely. It's like seeing, looking at a scar. Uh, like I, I actually looked at my body the other day and I saw a scar and I'm like, oh, I don't remember where this came from. So it's, there's just this vague kind of um, memory, of course, I can verbalize and communicate and still remember what I went through, but there's no emotional connection anymore. It just disappeared, which is, it's the work in, it is the work of self-discovery, self-knowledge, just being very Absolutely. interested in, in, in the inner world. And thank you so much for being one of those guides, um, Nicole, to help us to dive into the, the inner world so we can heal finally. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Although healing is dynamic, right? It's not something Absolutely. that, right? It keeps, it's, we need to keep working on it. It's an ongoing process. Yes, for sure. At some, yeah, at some levels, kind of, there's doors, like they, they're closed, like those for me. But then, of course, once in a while, I still have dreams and things like that. They right, come right. back at that level. So do you attribute most of the addictive uh, patterns to childhood trauma? Um, I mean, yes and no. It, right. it, it really depended on the case. So like I said, I worked in an inpatient rehab um, for those of you outside of the United States, like it, we were serving Medicaid clients. So Medicaid is like low income um, client, like people who come from low income households. So I saw a lot of, a lot of um, childhood trauma, sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse. A lot of people that I was working with had prolonged exposure to poverty. Um, so they were, so they were living in neighborhoods where there was gun violence, gang violence, um, they saw their parents using drugs. They got introduced to drugs as early as the as early as when you're like eight or nine years old. Um, 
so yeah so i used to see a lot of cases like that and then um and then i would also hear like occasional like uh, actually not occasional like a pretty common cases where it's like yeah i went and had a surgery done and you know they started taking the medications and they just couldn't get off of it right and then um prescription pills turned into heroin or in this case it's the fentanyl right because that's what's being used a lot unfortunately i, I mean the drug world was never good heroin fentanyl nothing was ever good so it was just that sense right it was just that sense of okay so it, it everybody had their own story right like the one thing i'll say about addiction is like you really never know when it can when it can hit um so it's it's scary right like it's so i so yeah there was a lot of trauma cases a lot of trauma cases and i think the ones with the trauma cases that i worked on too it's like you know the drugs served a purpose for not reliving those painful moments. And when people would get sober, right, your brain is sober, your brain is cleared up from the fog of the drug. So all of these memories, all of this stuff that they were experiencing would would, would be like, hit them, right? Like, you know, full force and everything. And that made the sobriety process even more harder to maintain, to learn these skills to maintain sobriety as well as dealing with the trauma. Um, so I'm not going to say all addiction and substance abuse cases had trauma background but a good a good chunk of them did yeah yeah it's it's very sad it was it was really sad yeah i can imagine you know that's an amazing work Uh, i want to thank you again for being open to help others in this way because uh that is something like it sounds like something that i could not do (laughs) Mm -hmm. not at that level yeah, it's uh, it's hard. It's it definitely it was not easy work. It, it was rewarding work. I will say that it's fulfilling and rewarding. But um, again, it's it's hard work, and I think it, I think we are in an opioid. I believe we are in an opioid crisis right now. I think they I think it's an epidemic right now. So it's 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 very hard. Wow, is this? Uh, do you see any movements? Anything being done to uh, prevent or to end the opioid um, addiction? I mean, I'm not following things on that grand of a scale. I am working, I'm a little bit more client-centered based. So um, I can't, yeah, I can't really speak to what's going on externally. Um, so yeah, I'm, I, I don't really, I, I follow the numbers and I follow just the statistics as well as just trying to, you know, understand like, okay, like, you know, how big this has gotten and, um, you know, the effects of fentanyl, what it does to the body, Um trying to keep up with just like the, the, just the modern news. But as far as like, you know, what's being done about it, I, I really can't comment that much. I, I, I don't follow it to that extent, if that makes sense. I just follow on the client centered base. Yes. Yeah. It does make sense to me because I don't watch TV or anything like that. So I have right. no idea. That's why I usually ask here. <laughs> but yeah. interestingly enough, most of my podcast guests, they don't know also about these things. <laughs> so I right. guess we are living our own lives, uh, making a difference right in, uh, in our own environments, little by little. So in, in speaking of that, what do you do? Do you meet your clients online and offline as well, Nicole, these days? Um, so as of right now, I'm still seeing people online. Um, yeah, like the, our field has just been full force into telehealth since COVID. Um, so yeah, that's something I'm, you know, continuing to talk about with my clients and just the practice I, I work with. So uh, yeah. That's wonderful to know. I have the website here to what I have on your podcast profile as well. Right. And I know you speak also Spanish, so English and Spanish, both languages that I, I'd like to mention that I almost forgot to mention. And then uh, it has been wonderful to talk to you. I love how open you are. Oh, thank um, you. No, it was, this was great. <laughs> thank you for your presence, um, Nicole. And before we say goodbye for today, I do have a few more questions, the ending questions. But uh-huh. before that, would you like to add anything that you left unsaid? or something that we forgot to mention or comment? No, absolutely not. This was a wonderful experience. I love speaking with you about this stuff. This is um, definitely right up my alley. And again, kind of like what you said, I love speaking to people that are as open about this as I am. Yeah, I can tell. <laughs> the sound of your voice, the way you speak and how you speak about these things. You love having meaningful conversations. Oh, that's wonderful. So the ending questions, I'll ask you this one. What three experiences you wish everyone to have before they lose the body, before they die? Um, I would say travel. Travel as much as you can. See the world, right? Kind of go out of your comfort zone. 
when it comes towards traveling. And, and I understand like, you know, traveling it's, it's financially, it's a lot and it could be expensive at times. Try to do anything with traveling and meeting new people. I think that really enhances a lot of people and, and just, just your personal experience and your own development. Um, there are three experiences. So tr- definitely traveling and meeting others. I don't know if that meeting others is second, but um, what I would also say too, is just, again, learn, learn about yourself, right? Like learn what makes you operate instead of just trying to follow the, the typical nine to five schedule, right? Like just getting through the day, going to work, right? Like to like have moments to yourself, to sit with yourself and to kind of sit with like why you do what you do and what, what brings you that fulfillment. Um, but really like practicing some silence is, is what I would kind of say to that. And then the third experience, right. Uh, hmm, I guess I would say the third experience, just I, like, I, I'm not a person that pushes faith, right. Like, I, I don't want to say like, Oh, believe in God, but like explore, explore your own spirituality, right? Explore your own faith, explore your own beliefs and why you believe what you do and how it makes you feel and how it enhances your life. Um, so that's, that's the three reasons I would, I would recommend. Yes. I love your wisdom. Thank you so much, Nicole. What is another word for healing? What comes to mind? Healing or just kind of working on, hmm, that's a good question. I, I never really thought of it that way. I guess I would say working on just improving yourself, ideal self that you want to be. Yes, that sounds wonderful. And that's the goal yeah, of healing for sure. So uh, let's see. I want to thank you again for your presence, for being open to life, to this extent of helping others to heal from the inside out. That is something that I have devotion for, to, uh, given my experience and um, the work that I do with spirituality. I, there's something about what you do as a therapist that really interests me and my audience, of course. So thank you so much again for being you, Nicole. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And thank you for having me. This was this was great. Thank you. And before we say goodbye for today, where's the best place to find more information about you and what you do? Um, so you could look on the practice website. Um, I like I said, I, I usually see clients in New York and Pennsylvania because that's where I'm licensed in. Um, so the practice I work for is Thriving Center of Psychology. Um, you could look my bio up there and and get a touch get in touch with me there. Wonderful. I'll have the link on your podcast profile. Thank you again. And we'll talk soon. Bye for now, Nicole. Thank Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Nicole Maldonado and her work, please visit thrivingcenterofpsych.com backslash therapists backslash Nicole dash Maldonado.lmft To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.